This week on Cinemaholics, we're catching up on one of the best films of the year, If Bill Street Could Talk, with special guest Julia Tatey. What Barry Jenkins did, and did so well, I think, is really adapt the vision and the feeling that Baldwin had. Later in the show, we'll also talk about The Upside, a new inspirational drama starring Brian Cranston, Kevin Hart, and Nicole Kidman. I think you're a little more negative than I am, only in the sense that my expectations for this film were so extremely low. Stay tuned for even more reviews, including Black Mirror Bandersnatch on Netflix. The story here, it's actually pretty meta. It's literally about its own format. And an early peek in A True Detective Season 3 on HBO. Now he has Season 3, which is definitely trying to harken back to Season 1. All that and more is coming up on Cinemaholics. Welcome once again to Cinemaholics. He is a pop culture writer for Cinema Blend. He also reviews films for The Playlist, Cutprint Film, and so many more. It is Will Ashton. Hi there. And I am the author of the novel Killer Joy, a book about Pixar called The Pixar Theory, and I write about film for Adam Insider, Relevant Magazine, and The Young Folks. I am John Agroni. But enough about us. We have a special guest this week. She writes about film and TV and everything in between for The Playlist. Film School Rejects, Polygon, Girls on Tops, and many more. We're so happy to have her on Cinemaholics for the first time. Welcome to the show, Julia Tatey. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Hey, welcome. Yeah, so you got to be on our uh, our top 10 episode last week, so you kind of snuck on the Contributor Network real quick, but here I it is. Did. It's official. Glad to be here. I stuck my way in. Well, you can find more episodes of Cinemaholics on adamtickets.com. You can write into the show anytime by emailing us cinemaholicspodcast at gmail.com. And you can support us directly by becoming one of our monthly patrons on patreon.com slash cinemaholics. Real quick, we have a few off topics this week and related to our Patreon, we want to welcome our newest patron, Paul. Paul, thank you so much for donating to Cinemaholics. And we're so happy to have fans like you. And we'll, you know, there's a big episode coming up next week, and I think you should yeah. let the listeners know what. Why is this episode going to be so significant? Uh, yeah, it's going to be our 100th episode, our official entry into the triple digits mm-hmm. for Cinemaholics, and uh, I just wanted people to chime in and tell us what they think we should do for episode 100. John and I have been going back and forth trying to figure out what we should do. We've uh, kind of pitched ideas back to each other, but I'd rather just hear from the listeners what they think is fitting. Uh, I was telling John, I kind of felt like last week's episode was like our 100th episode because of everyone who contributed. Yeah. So it's kind of weird to do like an actual 100th episode uh, this upcoming week. But yeah, I want to hear from everybody and what they say. And uh, we'll go from there. If anything else, or at the very least, I mean, uh, just pitch questions that you'd like to have us answer on the air or just things you'd like to know about us. And uh, we'll go from there. So yeah, feel free to write in. Surprised to see what happens. And in other words, Will, it sounds like you're saying we pitched ideas back to each other and we didn't like each other's ideas at all. So we're just putting it on the listeners at this point. But fair enough. Uh, we should also mention, so Sundance is coming up. So the end of January is going to be, we're, we're going to try to do something kind of cool for Sundance, hopefully. Uh, I'm going to be covering only like half of the festivals. So I don't know what we're going to be able to do, but stay tuned for that. And coming up more soon from now, we have a last call coming up. Uh, We're planning to talk about a new film instead of the main film coming this weekend. So don't know 100% sure if that's going to happen, but we want it to be happening. It's for a movie that Will and I saw this weekend called The Kid Who Would Be King. I want to do just a special bonus episode of that. And so keep an eye out on your podcast feeds. It may be coming later this week, but okay. 
Main review this week is one I've talked about on this show twice already. So I'm going to go ahead and stay out of this review for the most part. Will, Julia, this is your time to shine, thankfully. Listeners are well aware of my opinion of our main review this week, which is If Bill Street Could Talk. But for those who haven't heard about this new film yet, perhaps they've been skipping past my thoughts in anticipation to get both of your takes. Uh, So, Will Ashton, who made this film and what is it about? Yeah, it's the new film from Barry Jenkins, who is probably best known for his sophomore film, Moonlight, which won Best Picture uh, for, I think, 2017 or 16? It was 2017, but it was a 2016 Uh, film. Right. And that was, I guess, uh, the controversial... Uh, La La Land, Moonlight, The Backle, where uh, one film was said to be the winner when it was actually the other. So I feel kind of bad that the film kind of has that, that reputation with it because it is really such a wonderful film. And I think uh, Barry Jenkins has proven himself already. But I think with this film, it really just shows like when he's given the budget and the capabilities to tell a big, expansive story that he wants to tell, that he has the power and he knows what to do because he is so good at his job um not to give away my opinion of the film too early but uh yeah so the film is uh based on the book of the same name by james baldwin uh it follows uh tish and fanny uh two african-american people in new york who find themselves uh in love with each other and then at odds by a uh police system that is uh seemingly at odds against them and the film and the book both explore their lives and how they kind of have to deal with the situation especially with uh tish being pregnant with funny well their child um and it just uh it's really such an intimate uh personal story that um it's not a very easy story to capture in full on film because it's very intimate and it's very reflective and it's a story that relies very much on the thoughts and emotions of the characters. And I think it's really a tribute to Barry Jenkins as a filmmaker that he's able to capture those emotions so seemingly effortless and in a way that's very like very natural feeling. It just feels so organic to the moment. But at the same time, you can see his creative influence, even just from the first shot, like the way that you have um, one character in yellow over blue and one in blue over yellow and just the way he uses colors and natural lighting in the film, it just, it's such a gorgeous little movie. And I think I'm going to have to ultimately echo many of the positive things that you have said so far, John. So awesome. Oh, well, yeah. So, so then Julia, Will will read the book. What were your impressions and thoughts going in? I mean, did, had you read the book at all? Had you learned, heard a lot about what the movie really was or did you go in pretty fresh? I, uh, like the, I think both of you, uh, I had also read James Baldwin's novel before going into the film. And I thought that more than just kind of adapting the story to the screen, what, um, what Barry Jenkins did and did so well, I think is really adapt the vision and the feeling that Baldwin had in his words and in his beautiful, beautiful prose. It was, very lyrical and you can get that right away from just so many of the visuals like will mentioned and i think that that's also just a huge uh uh tribute to uh the work of james laxton who uh, was the director of photography for moonlight and is so with beale street um yeah it was just beautifully lush and saturated and was a very emotional experience as well um, I think that 
just as a whole, the entire cast is at the top of its game here, truly. I don't think that I could have imagined other uh, performers in these roles. I think that they really brought out the best in the characters that Baldwin had so, with such detail and with such care, brought to life through his words. Um, Regina King is obviously at the top of the game here and deserves all of the um, credit that she has been receiving throughout this, uh, especially this upcoming awards cycle. Um, But I also think that someone who I was just completely transfixed by in watching the film was uh, Brian Tyree Henry, who isn't in, he's not in the film for a very long time, but he leaves one of the biggest impressions. Mm -hmm. And I remember I was talking to someone about, uh, his moments on screen and just how you don't even need the visuals for what he's describing with his words and with his character's experience, his character being Daniel, but you can just sense everything on his face through his eyes. It's it's just really, really great work. I wish more people were talking about him in this and as well in Widows. Uh, he's just had a really great year. So I, it was just a very... Um, I felt that it was such a humbling experience to watch the film. It was very, very beautiful. Uh, so I have to kind of echo what both of you have been saying, what so many other uh, folks have been saying about the film. It's just a very beautiful, humbling uh, film to bear witness to. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the Golden Globes. So it was nominated for three awards and it won one. So Regina King won best supporting actress, but it didn't win best motion picture for drama or best screenplay and critics choice awards. It got nominated for five awards. So best picture, best supporting actress again, and best adapted screenplay. So it's Oscar chances. I mean, it's interesting that we're talking about this movie right now because it hit a very, very limited release, just a handful of theaters in late December. A lot of people saw it even earlier than that. And so we're talking about it in January as this tends to happen in award season. So real quick, I want to hear from you, Will. I mean, what do you think this film's chances are for an Oscar nomination in any of these categories and maybe winning? I don't know. I mean, I do think there is a strong possibility that like Fam Thread last year, it might sneak in the eighth or ninth nomination. Um, I know last year, I think people didn't really expect Fam Thread to come in because it kind of came late in the game the same way that uh, Bale mm-hmm. Shree is coming in. But I think that might play to its advantage coming in at this point. And now that's getting a pretty wide release uh, in January. I think people are getting a chance to see it. And especially since Barry Jenkins won already for his last film, I think it has a pretty strong possibility of being nominated but i'm i'm crossing my fingers at this point i can't say it's definitive but i'm really hoping yeah i saw a tweet that really depressed me this morning and it was along the lines of it's looking like the oscar front runners are films directed by the guy from dumb and dumber and the third x-men movie instead of the guy who directed la la land the guy who directed moonlight and so on so it, it is kind of a fascinating award season, even more so than last year. But uh, what about you, Julia? Are you optimistic, pessimistic in between? Um, I'm cautiously optimistic, I think. Um, it's, you know, kind of like what Will was saying, bringing it, bringing it in late in the game with January and having its wide release. I think hopefully more people, especially folks who had the opportunity to see Moonlight and... Mm-hmm 
just wanted to stick with Barry Jenkins' career. Um, we'll hopefully have the opportunity to see it and really kind of also give that public push for it. Um, it's, I don't know, I would be very disappointed if it was uh, overlooked. Yeah, I think it's worth pointing out, this is a really bizarre December kind of holiday release time because we were supposed to get this film and On the Basis of Sex hitting more theaters. I mean, at least more people were anticipating these films to be bigger holiday releases, right? But instead, mm-hmm. it looks like the, the studios were so afraid of Mary Poppins Returns, Bumblebee, Aquaman, and rightfully so. I mean, Aquaman has been decimating box office expectations. It's I think it's just got knocked down from number one for the first time in about a month or however long it's been out. So yeah, worth, worth bringing up that the studios... They, they definitely wait until these Golden Globes and these Critic Choice Awards nominations start coming in because then that's when they know it's okay. okay Beale Street could talk. That's something we can release in theaters in January. And I hope people use this as an opportunity to check it out because it really is so good. And, you know, I really have nothing else to add <laughs> in terms of like the, the quality of the film itself. It is just a film. People should go out and check it out because they have the chance right now. And I mean, Will, what would you say is somebody's barrier to entry for this film? I mean, who do you think is going to get the most out of it? I mean, what what audiences do you think might have a, maybe a difficult time appreciating this film, if anyone? Uh, well, I think what Barry Jenkins does so well is make movies that thrive on empathy and the way that he is able to capture human emotions so tenderly and vividly, I think anyone who can really appreciate just a film that is so like soft and gentle and caring for its characters and their environment and the way that they live on a day-to-day basis. I think, I think it has a pretty wide audience. I mean, it's, I can see this movie being a little more intimate and maybe a little more uh, restrained than uh, Moonlight because it doesn't quite go like three generations like that film did. So maybe people will be surprised by that. Uh, but I really think this movie has a possibility of reaching a wide audience, and I can definitely see it uh, reaching a lot of people's hearts because it had a pretty uh, wide crowd um, when I saw it at, at like a three o'clock showing on a Saturday, and it seemed like everyone really was taken by the film. So I'm pretty hopeful for the audience reception. All right. Uh, well, then I know last week I had this as my number six film of 2018. I don't want to put both of you on the spot, but I'm going to. Julia, does okay. this film does this film kick any any of your top ten choices out? Does it make it into your top ten, or do you still need some time to sit on it? It definitely makes its way into my top ten, probably closer to my top five. I've seen a couple films within the last few weeks where I felt like, oh, I have to go back and redo my top ten for a second or third time at this mm-hmm. point. But it's definitely it's it's too good to not uh, put in my top ten. I had such a visceral and emotional reaction to it that was so positive, and I just can't. It, I can't not put it in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I have a feeling, Will, I mean, your number 10, if I recall, was Incredibles 2. Is that yeah. still the case? Did did Bill Street uh, reformat your list? Yeah, with apologies to Incredibles 2, yes. I'm I'm afraid <laughs> it's going to have to get knocked off because I, I would be really remiss if I didn't put it Bill Street could talk in my top 10 list. Um, I'm not 100% sure where at this time, uh, but it's definitely in there for sure. 
Yeah, it would be a weird thing to explain in like a decade's time. Um, oh, if Bell Street could talk, uh, it almost made it. But, you know, Avengers Infinity War was pretty sweet. <laughs> so, um, no, I know I know a lot of people had that on their top 10 lists. And I think maybe one person had it as their number one last week. But wow. don't ha- I don't have the spreadsheet in front of me. And it was it was a pretty wild uh, rundown. But all right, I mean, Street- all the superhero movies last year. I mean, nothing against Infinity War, but yeah, okay. Okay. Yeah, we won't take any more shots at Infinity War. I won't stand for it. But okay, if Bill Street could talk, I want to hear your final thoughts, grades, starting with you, Julia. Oh, right on the spot. Um, I would probably be going um, kind of close to where you are with it. I was with, uh, I was pretty close to an A minus on it. I'm resting pretty steadily there. Um, My only qualms which are very very small were uh going into kind of maneuvering through the final act and specifically the ending because jenkins does take a different turn than where baldwin's novel finished but i do really appreciate where he was taking kind of the cyclical nature of the narrative that he was showing so i'm still kind of wrestling with that a little bit but other than that i feel really solid about the e minus grade that i'm giving it all right what about you will yeah, I'm the same. I'm an A minus. I really have only minor criticisms to say, if any. I mean, I think I agree with you that you you had some criticisms about Pedro Pasquale's performance. I think, if I remember correctly. Yeah, a lot of the John. Puerto Rico set pieces did not really work for me personally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, his performance in it wasn't bad. It just wasn't. I don't think quite right. Maybe just because I the way it was different than the way it was how I perceived it in the book, but. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, that's really among the minor criticisms I do have for the film. I really, really enjoyed it. And I think my appreciation for the film is really only going to grow with time. And I think a lot of times, especially since his death, I think a lot about like what, how like Roger Ebert would feel about a lot of films these days. Mm-hmm. And I know definitely with Moonlight, I was thinking like how much he would have liked the film. And I, I found myself thinking that way again with this film. I think just everything that this movie captures with its environment and the way that it portrays empathy and everything about it. Just, it's such a gorgeous film and I'm really looking forward to people checking it out. Well, according to the box office, it's, it's doing pretty well. It's earning, it's, I think it's at a few million at this point and without even being expanded to that many theaters. Although this past weekend following its golden globe win, it actually expanded to over a thousand theaters. So it's made, I think at least three, three or $4 million at this point. So it's doing pretty well as an independent film. I, I don't think we mentioned too that this is coming from Annapurna Pictures. And oh yeah. Uh, they they're they've been on a roll, <laughs> I have to say. I very, very impressive 2018 for them. And as far as reception goes, yeah, our, our grades are right up there with a lot of other critics and fans. It currently has a 95% on Rotten Tomatoes out of over 200 reviews. So and a really high average rating of 8.7. So it's looking like another really solid hit for for Barry Jenkins, his third film, and, and interesting to see. Let's see. So he did Medicine for Melancholy in 2009. A lot of people will count Moonlight as like his first, like really budgeted feature length film. So you know this could be the this could be the start of a filmmaking career that is a little bit more consistent in terms of when it, the release dates are. So hopefully we don't have to wait a long time for his next film because he's clearly shown that. He is, he's really striking a chord with audiences and critics alike. 
But all right, that is If Bale Street Could Talk. It's in theaters now, and all three of us recommend it. But let's move on to another film and our next big review. Before we get into that, though, Julia, I know you have a Netflix film from 2018 to recommend that Will and I, we've never even brought up on the show. As far as I could, Will, correct me. I, we've never talked about this one. I don't think so, no. Yeah, I, I've heard about it, and I've heard that some people really like it, and I feel guilty because I, I did my it's top my 10 list. Netflix films. Well, I did a top 10 yeah. for just Netflix films, and I feel like I might have missed something here. So, so Julia, please educate us. What is this film? Yeah, so this film is called Happy as Lazaro, also uh, known in its Italian title as Lazaro Felice. It was a big winner at the Cannes uh, Film Festival, won the uh, Cannes Screenplay Award. It, it is written and directed by Alice Warwatcher. And uh, simply put, it tells the story of the village of Involata and a young man by the name of Lazaro, who is so good and so kind and yet is taken advantage of along with the community that he lives in. Uh, Lazaro's kindness and genuine nature transport him through time uh, to track down the community that he was a part of and reunite with the members of his village. I was completely uh, taken by this film. I think that it is absolutely beautiful. It's one of those films that uh, if you find yourself maneuvering a very stressful day or week, if you put this film on, it completely dissipates all of that. It is very beautiful in terms of what it captures. It has a very naturalistic and also Italian neorealism feel about it. Um, The cinematography is just absolutely beautiful. Uh, The director of photography for the film was Helene uh, Louvert, I believe is how you pronounce it, who also uh, did the, was the director of photography for the film Beach Rats, which came out, Mm. I believe in 2018 and earned, and earned a um, independent film spirit award for best cinematography. So her work is definitely worth catching out or checking out. And, I just, yeah, I just was really taken by the film. It feels really timely, but also has a timeless quality about it. And it feels like you're watching an Italian fable just play out in front of you. It's it's really beautiful to look at, but it also just has a very, very beautiful heart, I think, at the center of it. And I would totally recommend it, especially if you're someone who is really kind of looking to build your uh, foreign language film catalog. This is definitely a recently released film that would 100% be a great addition to that. Yeah. I I know this one has won some awards in uh, I think Cannes Film Festival, Uh, Alice Warwarker won for best screenplay. And then I've just seen this film. It hit so many top 10 lists more recently. Like I think people are finally starting to spread the word a little bit, at least in my circles. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate you letting us know we, we, we missed one. We always miss something. Will. we always miss a really good (laughs) film. It's so accessible. We could have seen this Mm -hmm. so long ago and just (laughs) not getting to it. So thank you, Julia. No problem. But okay, let's, let's talk. Okay. So two films in a row that are, pretty highly recommended and and did you say what your grade was for happy as lazaro or do you have one oh my grade for it i you know it's one of those films and this was uh kind of how i felt 
at the same time about my number one film of the year, which was Leave No Trace. It's one of those films that I keep going back to it and keep trying to actively find something wrong with it. And I can't. I think that it's just a really beautiful film. It's another film that completely messed up my top 10. So I'm going to have to go back again and rearrange every a bunch of titles. But I would give it an A. I think that it's just really wow. beautiful. It has a lot of subtle commentary, I think, about... Um, working class and also economics. And I think that has a really strong hold in the history of Italy as well. And something that people could probably look into if they wanted to do more of that research. It's a very light film in terms of how it approaches you, but it has some very heavy commentary that I think will jog people's minds at the same time. It sounds then like this has got to hit your top 10 as well, right? Or Yeah, (laughs) yeah, definitely. It's, I feel like I'm being a little bit too generous with it. But at the same time, like I said, there's very, very little that I could tell you that I did not like about this film. So yeah, I'll send you an updated list maybe at some point. (laughs) Yeah, maybe it needs to be a top 15. That's fine. Uh, yeah, if it was if it was a top fifteen, I would feel a lot more confident. But I feel bad. I feel bad knocking off these these great titles all the time. <laughs> well, now that it's twenty nineteen, we get to brush aside all of the wonderful twenty eighteen films we're catching up on and talk about one of the newest twenty nineteen films. And well, I don't think we've talked about a twenty nineteen film yet on Cinemaholic. So this is because of last week. But the first one we're going to talk about of the year is The Upside, which you and I saw. And it's a lighthearted drama directed by Neil Berger. He, of course, director of 5050, Limitless. I think his most recent film was Divergent. And this film was written by John Hartmere. It's a remake of the French 2011 film The Untouchables, which was inspired by the real life of Philippe Poteau de Beaujeu. And I don't know about you, Will, but I love The Untouchables. I, I think that it's it's not the best movie in the world. It's like a B, B-plus kind of movie, probably more like a B. But that Omar C performance is wonderful. And I don't know how well this film has aged, to be totally honest, but because I think some of the tropes in it might be a little bit more recognizable in 2019. But wow, just watching The Upside make me wish I was watching The Untouchables instead. But we'll get into it. So... The Upside follows the story of an ultra-wealthy man played by Brian Cranston, who is also a paraplegic. He has no feeling below his neck. He's in need of a new caretaker, or they call it like a life auxiliary in this movie. And he enlists the help of a former convict, played by Kevin Hart, of course, who's recently made parole, and he's in dire need of a job. Here's a brief clip from The Upside. Alexa! Hey. What? I'll get the shower ready. I want that on. No, man. Look, I get you trying to block out the world, but can you at least do it to better music? Have you ever listened to opera? Yeah. Opera's really big in prison. You could hardly get a seat on opera night. Why can't we listen to Aretha? Hmm? You want to feed your soul? Then listen to its queen. Think about it. Yeah. You better think, think, think about what you're trying to do to me. Think, think. It's amazing, isn't it? I sound just like her. Yeah. When I close my eyes, which I needed to, it's uncanny. It's like identity theft. All right. That is from The Upside, which is now in theaters. It's the big movie of the week. I think it dethroned Aquaman. 
Will Ashen, what did you think wow. of this one? <laughs> yeah, it's quite a statement. I did not realize this is going to be a hit. Um, it was a huge hit yeah, in I France. Guess... It's it's a crowd pleasing story for sure. No, well, yeah, I mean, The Untouchables was a really big hit in right. France. Yeah, it was. Was it the highest grossing film? It won uh, some award. Recogn- yeah, it broke some records. Right. Yeah, it was definitely a big, big hit over there. Um, yeah, I guess though, I I wasn't really quite as high on the film as you were. The Untouchables. I mean. Um, I thought it was fine. Like you said, I really was taken by Omar Sy's performance, but other than that, I don't really remember much about it. And I don't really think I had that strong of an impression about the film, but it's fine. It's enjoyable. I can see why it was a lighthearted hit over there, but going into the upside, I think, uh, I think you're a little more negative than I am only in the sense that my expectations for this film were so extremely low that when I was watching it, I was just like, oh, okay. Like, yeah, there's a lot you can criticize about the film i think it's not a good film i think it's at best it's pretty mediocre but as far as watching it i found it charming enough and i think the performances from our two leads are decent enough that i wasn't bored while i was watching it i found it to be uh tolerable in a way that i wasn't anticipating so yeah i think it's just okay but Hmm. it seems like you're more negative than that absolutely i I just think this is such a a dull movie. And I think it does come from me liking the untouchables a little bit more. I just think that that film is so much sharper and wittier and there, there are clever jokes in that film. It definitely, it it definitely has a little bit more on its mind. Whereas the upside was just, I I just really felt like I was watching a really ham fisted trio of performances here. I mean, I don't know. I I, won't won't deny that. (laughs) I think, I think I was very, I shouldn't be shocked by this, but I was still so shocked that Kevin Hart does not have very good range. And and he can do two types of performances. He can do the sort of, all right, I'm being serious right now. I only take care of myself. He can do that competently. And then he can also do the like the fast talking, stand up, like, all right, I'm riffing, I'm making people laugh kind of thing. But he doesn't get down that ingredient that puts those two like acting types together. Like you don't believe it's the same performance. Like you don't see, you don't believe that the same performance is coming from the same person. And it constantly took me out of this movie because when he was switching between personas, I was like, that's really ham-fisted acting. And it really shows that his range isn't quite there yet. And I don't want to be too negative because I do think he could do it. Like, I think that he's someone who has obvious potential for being a more dramatic performer. Like Adam Sandler was really sort of testing and pushing himself with some of his early 2000s serious roles. I know you're a big fan of Punch Drunk Love, for example, which one of my favorite movies. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely Kevin Hart has it in him. And I, I did not go into this film ready to despise Kevin Hart as an actor, even though I greatly am annoyed with him and how he dealt with some of his past comments, his homophobic comments being dug up and how he got kicked out of the Oscars. I definitely am not a Kevin Hart apologist, but I'm also not, you know, looking for him to never work again or anything like that. I just wish he would be a better person. Like I guess most people in Hollywood and maybe, maybe this film could have worked a little bit better if there was just something else working here, because I think Brian Cranston is just pretty one note. And I think Nicole Kidman Mm. is absolutely 
just not just wasted in this movie, but demeaned to the point of absurdity. Like I, I just think that the way she is written here, she's written as just the spoil sport, tropey, I'm here to ruin everybody's good time. And it's just the Untouchables did such a better job with this character and making her feel like a real person. So seeing the upside just over Hollywoodize it just really offends me, I guess. Like it just really bugs sure. me that the Untouchables was good enough on its own. I know that it's been remade a few times before. Uh, this is the first American remake, but it, it just makes me feel confident that forget the upside. It's too long. It's too boring for what it is. And it's just, it's so not worth your time when the Untouchables is a much better film. Yeah, I guess I'm not, I don't know. I mean, really, I don't have a strong memory, like I said, of The Untouchables. So I can't talk about it too much. Like, I didn't even remember Nicole Kidman's character in that film. But uh, I agree with you it. about... Just... <laughs> what was that? I'm just messing with you, because you made it sound like she was in The Untouchables. Oh, and... uh, okay, okay, yeah, yeah. okay. I don't remember the actress um, name anyway, in that one, but yeah. Yeah, but um, yeah, no, I agree. Nicole Kidman is extremely wasted in this film. Like, she's given really next to nothing to do. And considering how great of a year she's had... Uh, in other films, I think it's pretty apparent that uh, it kind of adds to just how like dated this movie is. Like it just feels like a film that would have came out like in two thousand five. Uh, Plus, and on probably... top of that, it was delayed right a year and a half because yeah. of the Harvey Weinstein. Right. It was. Yeah. It was supposed yeah. to be distributed what March of last year. Something like that. I forget. Yeah, but um, yeah, it just it definitely feels like a film from another time. Uh, and not necessarily a good way, but uh, yeah, I guess I, I can't really agree with you about Brian Cranston's performance. I actually thought he was really good, though I definitely understand the criticism of him being able by man playing a quadriplegic character. I think that is valid criticism, but uh, I thought his performance was really good. I actually thought it was pretty uh, incredible what he was able to do in certain scenes. And um, yeah, no, I definitely don't agree with the idea of his performance being one note. As far as Kevin Hart, um, I don't know. I, I I definitely don't think it's like an amazing performance. I don't think he blew me away as much as I would think he what this performance to be really accepted and liked, but I thought it was pretty good. I didn't, I definitely see what you mean though. So I can, I would, I would like to see him do something else in the dramatic field that maybe pushes him a little bit more. Cause this feels like kind of like, it's still pretty comedic, but there's like dramatic touches. So it's just, it's a good transition for him as far as an actor is concerned, but I thought he did an okay job, but I, I can't really criticize it too much as far as the performance is concerned. So It's certainly not a step yeah. backward for him. I just think we disagree yeah. on how big of a step forward it is, maybe, and I think that he has it in him. Yeah, I to me, the biggest faults of the film really come down to just, like you said, how Hollywoodized this film is and just how cliched and formulaic it is. It just feels like your typical Hollywood version of a Hollywood remake of a foreign film, which really makes me concerned about... Um, if they're ever going to do the Tony Ehrman remake, uh, mm. I don't know what's happening with that, but um, I, I don't know if that's still in the works, but I, I hope it's better than this. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I really can't say I hated the experience of watching the film, but like I said, my uh, expectations were pretty low. So maybe that was what uh, made it a little more tolerable for me. It, it sounds to me like your memory of Untouchables might be really contingent on whether or not people like this one. Maybe, maybe I, yeah. I, I could Did see I... it. Yeah, I could see a lot of people who have never seen Untouchables be like, "Oh, this is fine." And because for me, for example, I mean, the opening scene in the Upside is ripped off wholesale. Oh yeah, from the Untouchables. Yeah, it's, it's the exact same shot. thing, and yeah, but it's shot. done worse. Yeah. 
it, it's done yeah. worse. Like I, I remember like the way that that scene ends and the opening credits and it's so fun and the song choice and you really get the tone of, of the untouchables from that opening, like five minutes and upside, it feels like it's done here for no reason. It adds nothing to the film. It doesn't give you a really good idea of what their dynamic is like. It doesn't really set a lot up. It doesn't pay off at all. And I, to me, it's very emblematic of how just absolutely hollow, like I said, this whole thing comes off for me. And yeah, I guess I guess people are liking it, though, because it is making money and it, it is a crowd pleaser. And I think that is the takeaway, is that if you've never seen Untouchables, first of all, go see that instead. If you, In my opinion, I think you should. But otherwise, I, I would say avoid this one. I don't think it's worth your time. Yeah, I mean, The Untouchable is certainly the better of the two. But yeah, I don't I don't know how big of a response it got in the United States. I really don't know how many people saw it. I was just, though I was talking to my sister. I guess they were watching in their French class today. She's actually watching the movie right now. Oh, great. So I'll have to talk to her and see what she uh, says about the film. But yeah, I don't really know how it was uh, received in America. It got kind of a muted response, I remember, compared to France, certainly. Yeah, it, uh, it, it hasn't. Out. It hasn't made. It didn't do really well over here, which is why they're remaking it for sure. Uh, but this new film, I mean, it's it's going to be a pretty modest hit. I think it's opening to about twenty million right now in the U.S. and it only cost about thirty-seven million to make. So it's looking like it's going to pay off financially, depending on how the next couple of weeks go. Depends on how if Glass is a big hit and kind of overshadows this one, but uh, not. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of an interesting, you know, it's kind of interesting how it all played out with how this film was delayed and delayed and the timing with Kevin Hart and all of this stuff. Uh, I'm kind of surprised to see it get this much attention in January, but... Yeah, it, yeah. yeah. Uh, what, what was your final grade? For me, th- this one is a C, pretty flat. Uh, I'll give it a C plus. All right, so <laughs> yeah. all we really have to say, Julia, have we sold you on checking this one out or... <laughs> Um, I will have to take some time to let these thoughts marinate, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think. Uh, the, you it, did this... sell me on. Go- you did sell me on seeking out un- uh, Untouchables, though. So I think it's pretty good. I know not everybody yeah. loves that movie, but I, th- I think it's pretty competent, um, especially compared to this. It's more than fine, Will Ashton. It's it's pretty darn good. But okay, so the I think upside... I gave it. Uh, I think I gave it a B minus at the time. I think See, I would, I would give it a B. So that's that's pretty. That's kind of where we usually tend to end up. So the upside yeah, has all a... these arguments. Our grades are like one let <laughs> like one percentage off. So there you go. Well, the, the difference is in the details, Will Ashton. The devil, exactly, some would say. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, the upside has a 40% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's actually climbing a little bit. It was in the 30s uh, just a couple of days ago. So it's not quite taken the critical world by storm, but again, it's doing pretty well financially so far and we'll keep following it over the next couple of weeks. But with that, let's move on. But we have another review, a big review to get to, but we'll... I know you you caught up on some things. You caught up on a new 2019 film, but you also caught up on some oh. very late... 2018 films and i think you wanted to briefly touch on all three and let us know what you what you saw so that we didn't have to perhaps uh sure uh yeah i mean i saw uh three like you said i saw the mule uh Holmes and watson and state like sleep I, I believe those are the films you're referring to correct it, it i yes and you cannot get away with 
not mentioning that you saw the Mule and Holmes and Watson as a double feature. Please explain. Oh, yes, of course. Yes, I did. Yeah. <laughs> I saw them back to back one night. Uh, one lonely night for me. I saw them all by myself. Uh if, if you're wondering what my life is like. Um, yeah, so The Mule is uh, the new Clint Eastwood movie. It might be his last. I don't really know. At least as an actor, as far as that's concerned. He said it's that actually, before, like a decade yeah, ago. Yeah, that's what I mean. So that's why I put a question mark at the end of that. But um, yeah, he, well, he is 88 now. And I, I feel like it's probably the last one. But who knows at this point. But um, it's actually a pretty decent hit as far as the box office is concerned, as far as I can tell. It's had it, legs because uh, it didn't start off yeah. super strong, but it's picked up. But yeah, it, it's a story of um, uh, like an uh, ex florist who kind of finds himself a joke mule uh, driving across the country. Uh, it's it's sort of like an American dream type fable. It's it's based on a real story. Uh, uh, really happened a couple years ago, and uh, it, it definitely fits uh, Clint Eastwood's mold. I think he does a pretty good job as far as the performance is concerned, but. As a film, it's exceptionally mediocre, and I'm not really happy to say it because, like, even though I'm very critical of Clint Eastwood's past couple of films, I kind of I've been wanting him to come back with a film that I really enjoyed, and I felt like the trailer for The Mule suggested that that might be his return to form. And I will say that it's at least a little more consistent in terms of quality compared to American Sniper, uh, Fifteen Seventeen to Paris, and Sully, but. It doesn't really capture anything that he hasn't said before, either with Gran Torino, Unforgiven, or his other films of late. And I don't think the way it's executed is particularly brilliant or intriguing. And so I gave it a C plus. It's it's a fine rental, I guess, if you really like Clint Eastwood's movies, but I can't really see anyone being blown away by it. It just feels kind of like he's retreading old ground. Uh, but then Holmes and Watson uh so this movie it, it it has definitely a reputation at this point for being i guess like the worst comedy of all time based at least based on the twitter response to the film uh and Which i don't take uh, I didn't a lot it. of stock in to be totally honest but you didn't right hate it. well it, it, it's more like like apparently like netflix refused to buy it and the, mm-hmm. the test screenings were a poor it and i don't know it it it, it, it it was it seemed like it was like a like a huge disaster, like a movie 43 for 2018. And uh, I'll say it it's bad. It's definitely a bad film, uh, but I didn't really hate it. It, it. I think it's because I was so fascinated by how it's bad in the sense that it doesn't have any clue what it wants to be. Like, it doesn't know if it wants to be a Sherlock Holmes comedy with John C. Riley and Will Ferrell, where they're actually really. You know, they're traditionally smart, Holmes and Watson, but they just have a very kind of like bombastic slapstick way of solving crimes. Or if it's actually they're really dumb and everyone else in the town is even dumber and they're just kind of like mildly superior in that sense. And so the film bounces back between that constantly. And there's also like different type of comedy styles, sometimes very dialogue based, sometimes very heavily slapstick, sometimes very broad, sometimes very more like eccentric and absurdist. And like watching each scene is like a different director was in charge of the film at each different time. And it's kind of fascinating because it's it's really badly directed and it's really terribly edited. But I think the jokes in it could work if they were done better, or at least some of the jokes, because like there's a couple lines. So jokes could be better if they were done better is what you're saying. Well, like like okay, so there's like a line like here and there that like 
could be funny. Like, like John C. Riley at one point says, like, I always find there's something sensual about an autopsy, which is a funny line if it's done well. But like the way it's executed here is just like they don't really let scenes breathe. They just kind of say jokes, but they don't really like execute them in the right way. And then like the occasional joke that they do let breathe is just like the worst jokes in the film. So it's very odd execution style. And I don't know if they just didn't have an idea of what they wanted to do or if it was just that while they were testing the film, like they just kept getting different responses and they went and reshot it and it just like became like this jumbled mess throughout. But I find it a fascinating kind of bad that I, I don't find most comedies that are terrible to be fascinating. So I give it I'll give it a C. It's not good. And I can definitely see why people are critical of it, but I would say Will Ferrell has certainly done worse in his resume. So there's and, an upside uh, to Holmes and Watson, sounds like it. Eh, no, it still sucks. But I mean, it's it it it's not the worst thing in the world. That's what I'll say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and State Like Sleep is just boring. That's all I really have to say about it. State Like I'm Sleep, sorry. the Michael Shannon one with uh, Catherine Watterson. Yeah, right. It's just boring. There's really not much to it. Yeah, I heard to skip it. I mean, it's an indie film. It, it hasn't really made a lot of noise, but I wasn't sure, you know, could it could have yeah. been a decent watch in a I January mean, Luke season. Evans, Luke Evans is in the film, too, and he's good. Michael Shannon's good. Uh, Catherine Watterson's decent, but it it occasionally it promises like this kind of like eyes wide shut type thriller, but never really dives deep into that. And it really just kind of becomes like a boring middle middling mess of a film. Mm-hmm. And I really don't have anything more to say about it. So that's that's my mini reviews for the week, I guess. State like sleep. B plus from the Lashin. Oh yeah. So that's that's a that's I guess a I don't know, a C. C I'll give as it well. a C. A lot of C's yeah. this week, but hmm. Yeah, a lot of C's, yeah. Well, I don't know if that'll be the case. Too C, though. Oh, there it is. Okay. It sounds like there's too much to see because we did we did start the mm. show with two really highly positive reviews, but okay. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Now, this next one, Julie and I have seen, and Will, I, I still am wanting you to check it out. If you're willing to see The Mule and Holmes and Watson, but you won't watch Black Mirror Bandersnatch, which is actually like a very intriguing kind of big moment in film, I, I don't know what to say. I don't, I, don't know, I don't know how we recovered from this, but anyway, let's I, talk about this. But I, I'll hold off. Yeah, all right. We'll, we'll, let you, we'll let you round out our thoughts, I guess, at the very end. Okay. But yes. So we're going to talk about what I consider a bizarrely, wonderfully weird new interactive film. Again, it's called Bandersnatch. It is a feature-length spinoff of the Black Mirror anthology series on Netflix, which are sci-fi mini-stories. And I've, I've never seen a Black Mirror episode before, so I have a weird entry point into this. I just watched it, and I just gave it a shot. And one of these days, I am going to watch all the Black Mirror episodes I don't know why I haven't. It's just one of those things, I guess, that I've just chosen or just haven't had opportunity to do. But like I said, this is an interactive film, which in this sense means it's very much a choose-your-own-adventure story uh, or like one of those books, but as a film. In fact, it's actually getting sued by the people who own that because they say choose-your-own-adventure in the movie, and apparently that's trademarked. So some frivolous lawsuit is going on where Netflix... Basically, it was like, we're just going to say it anyway. We don't care. And the choose your own adventure people are like, well, you're going to have to pay us $25 million, which, all right. 
Uh, as you watch Bandersnatch unfold, you're given the power to make decisions for the main character. That's what makes it interactive. So as the story is going on, it'll continue, but then underneath the screen, you'll have a chance to select a choice that the main character actually does. And then so it goes on along all these different paths, and the film changes as you go on. It has multiple endings and so on. Here is a clip from the film. one reality but there's loads of them all snaking off like roots and what we do on one path affects what happens on other paths there's messages in every game like pac-man do you know what pac stands for p-a-c program and control he's program and control man the whole thing's a metaphor he thinks he's got free will but really he's trapped in a maze and all he can do is consume he's pursued by demons that are probably just in his own head and even if he does manage to escape by slipping out one side of the maze, what happens? He comes right back in the other side. People think it's a happy game. It's not a happy game. It's real and we live in it. It's all code. If you listen closely, you can hear the numbers. There's a cosmic flow chart that dictates where you can and where you can't go. I've given you the knowledge. I've set you free. So the story here, it's actually pretty meta. It's literally about its own format because the main character, Stefan, is a video game programmer in the 1980s. He's trying to produce a choose-your-own-adventure video game that will hopefully take off and get the best reviews. You even have Stefan at one point walking two of the other characters through the mechanics and logic of these types of stories. He explains what a choose-your-own-adventure novel is, what, what he's trying to do for the game. So the game he's trying to make in the movie is called Bandersnatch, and that is based on a book that he loves with all of these multiple paths and multiple endings. So it's literally a fictional book within a fictional video game, within a fictional movie, within a fictional anthology series, within a very real streaming platform. So the less we say about this interactive experience, the better, I think. We don't want to give anything away because I think a lot of the joy of Banner Snatch is discovery. It's discovering your own endings and where this thing goes, what tones it decides to take on, and so on. So all I'll say for now is that this is absolutely a film that doesn't settle on the initial hook of its own premise. And I think it's worth checking out. But Julia, you saw this as well. I don't know if saw is like the right word here, but without <laughs> yeah. giving too much away... So Bandersnatch, yay or nay? Um, I'm still kind of lukewarm on it. I was definitely uh, vexed and transfixed by the whole thing. I was definitely entertained by it. Uh, the one thing that I will say Black Mirror does very well, and I actually have seen a few of the uh, earlier, I guess if you like to call them earlier, episodes, uh, particularly, I think my entry point with the series was... Uh, 15 Million Merits, and that star Daniel Kaluuya and Jessica Brown Finley, who I'm both big fans of. Um, so I had to kind of take a break from Black Mirror for a little while, because the one thing that the anthology series does very well is portraying these narratives that make you feel just very uncomfortable with our relationships to technology and this world of advancing technology around us and these stories have a kind of pull away from the cathartic feeling that you get from watching uh film and television and kind of getting that emotional release so with bandersnatch there's a lot going on i will say that i spent a good 
chunk of time kind of traversing different choices um, throughout the uh, interactive film. Um, I think that in terms of Black Mirror's kind of uh, brand, I guess, if you want to even call it that, um, I, th- I think that it's a very good first effort for this kind of experiment. I definitely felt myself reflecting a lot more on what it means to kind of take away agency from characters and from people when you have the power to do that. Also kind of this warped and demented emotional reaction that we get from some of the choices that we make. Also knowing that we don't have to deal with the consequences in the way that the characters within the story do. So I definitely, it left me thinking a lot I was definitely into it, whether I can say that I was positively into it or negatively into it. It's still, I'm still kind of muddling through, but I think that for Black Mirror and for kind of maintaining that consistency and that commentary of our relationship to technology and technological advancement and kind of the consequences of that, those relationships, I definitely think it's a decent first effort for Black Mirror in this kind of format. Yeah, it is a good first effort. It definitely is a good signal for for interactive films like this that could come from all sorts of avenues and genres. Yeah, definitely. I I was never in love with it. I, I think mm-hmm. that I don't I don't love this, the type of choose your own adventure where it does kind of take you on a lot of dead ends and it kind of punishes you for yeah. making choices that really aren't bad choices. And sometimes it works because sometimes that's what it's about. It's sort of about mm-hmm. a character who wants to do redos. He wants to go back and change things and and how that affects his psyche and how that, you know, the way that plays out, that's good storytelling. It, you know, it's not amazing. Yep. It's not altogether fascinating, but it works and it actually is cohesive. My only thing is that I think that it's such a it's more of a water cooler kind of experience mm-hmm. than it is a, you've got to go see this. It's going to change your perspective on something kind of experience, which is why I will, I want you to see it because I want to talk to you about it. I don't think you're going to love it. <laughs> I just want to, I just want to see what choices you make because I think that it's a fun Rorschach test almost. And it, it is so difficult to talk about without giving things away and without, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, there is a scene that, it, that we, we played here and I, I shared it with you, Will, that I think is probably the best way to sort of get an idea of what this film is without giving away sort of the best stuff. It, it's just sort of a piece of the larger puzzle where you have one of the, the side characters, just uh, Will Poulter, I think his name is just talking about a video game and one that has larger implications. And I just think it's this really trippy rant that, you know, when you see where the story goes from there, it really is kind of hard to forget this, this, this one kind of Mm -hmm. unsettled me a little bit in some ways. It, It kind of messes with you and it sort of kind of drives you to maybe even some dark places. So I don't know if it has that same effect on everyone or if I'm just very susceptible to video game I agree with narratives. That. I don't know. Okay, so I'm not alone. That's good. But yeah. um, <laughs> my favorite thing about this, and then I'm good, I don't want to say anything else about the content, is I absolutely love the review sections. And I think that Cinemaholics should bring on Robin from the video game reviewing a 1984 show that is in this. I, I think that oh, he, he's great. He's fantastic. <laughs> 
we'd love to have you on. Uh, <laughs> and that, that's why I, I set this off, Julia, as yay or nay. I wanted to see if how many. Uh, zero out of five stars two and a half out of, i think there is one ending that is five out of five but i have yet to see it yeah and i've yeah i i don't want to give away too much i definitely feel like the different um uh different journeys i went on through bandersnatch some of them were i felt a little bit more solidified about and how i felt like oh okay i've mm-hmm. i I kind of won the game, uh, so to speak, I guess, if right. we're going for the meta video game experience. But then, like you said, that there are some some decisions that lead to certain endings that I just felt very, not so much unnerved, but not very, uh, uh, didn't sit well, I guess, in terms of the wholeness of the conclusion that I was given. But hey, that's kind of what Black Mirror does really well. Right. Yeah. I don't want anyone to go into this thinking it's going to be like heavy rain, for example, you know, which is way more of a, you make, you make a lot of important choices, but you still follow the same kind of story. Like the story doesn't really change in heavy rain. It's just the consequences and who lives and who dies in the very end is affected here. I mean, it'll go in a completely different universe, you know, if you make one wrong move and in some ways it's a plus because then you get a totally different experience from someone else and you can have, I've had some fun conversations with people who've done wildly different things than me, things that I thought were inconsequential Mm -hmm. that led to totally different situations. I was like, wow, that's, it's pretty ambitious filmmaking, but yeah. I Okay. Well, even now too, I think that some of the, I don't know if it's the showrunners or uh, just folks who are a part of the production are saying now that if you pick, if you, do a certain make make a certain decision two times in a row that you get a completely different storyline there too. So it's just a yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a crazy. very strange interactive makes me want to go back and kind of find different Easter eggs, see the different outcomes of my decisions, but also don't want to get fall down that rabbit hole at the same time all over again. Uh, I gave this one a B. You know, I, I think that it's it's good. It, I think it's worth checking out and it has some moments that are really memorable. And there's one in particular that I don't, I'll just say, Julia, it involves one of uh, a certain streaming platform I enjoy. And yes, that was, yes, one of the, that was one of the best moments <laughs> of the whole thing, honestly, for me. But uh, what was your grade? Um, I'm kind of with you. I'm a little bit uh, less amped about it simply because I'm still sitting with a lot of the... Uh, uh, kind of the commentary sitting around it and kind of feeling, um, uh, feeling, I guess, comfortable with it, I guess. So I'm going to go with a B minus definitely worth checking out. Um, I'm it's, it's very much within the black mirror universe (laughs) for sure. I'll take your word for it, but I know Will Ashton, you're not known as somebody who loves video games. Your favorite video game, I believe is still to this day, Mario party three. So two, two excuse right. me. Sorry, I didn't want to go that that far. But Will Ashton, you, you've avoided this one. Is it because of the video game connection or what's going on? No, I just have enough anxiety in my day that I don't need to make decisions <laughs> for other characters yeah. in my life. Oh yeah. Oh man. I, maybe, I can't worry about them now. I have my own problems. Why don't you should watch maybe there's some like playthroughs you can watch on YouTube or something where you don't make any of the decisions? That could be fun. Yeah, I could just watch a movie. <laughs> it is a movie. Okay, all right. Well, let's let's go on. Uh, we have another show to talk about, but I guess you could call Banner Snatch a show, and some people might call it just like an extended 
long episode. I consider it a movie though. But anyway, I I did see a full-fledged series this past week. Have either of you heard about this new show on Netflix called You? I have. Penn Badgley? Oh, yes. Yes. Definitely that, heard about uh, that. Is that that's not a you or a Netflix original, right? It's a it's from It is a Netflix North. original. It is it's directed by Greg Berlanti, of course, who's done a lot of CW shows. And when you watch it, you're like, "Oh, they were going to do this on the CW until they decided to put it on Netflix for some reason. Uh, that's it. Okay. Okay. Right. It's, it's based on a book. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, uh, I think it was supposed to be on lifetime originally. And that's what I thought. Yeah. I heard something about that. Yeah. Yeah. But then they passed on it and Netflix picked it up and I'm so glad they did because I, I tweeted this, I think yesterday it's the worst show that I love and I refuse <laughs> to stop watching it. I finished season one yesterday and I'm going to watch season two as soon as it's available because it's such an easy show to despise and I'm right there with everyone who despises it, but I love it anyway. So you, like I said, it stars Penn Badgley. You may remember him from the Gossip Girl series and he was also an easy A and he, he hasn't been all that active in film and TV in the last decade as far as I know. I mean, I really haven't seen him in a lot of stuff, but as soon as I heard he was in this new series, I was like, good. I, I think that he was probably the only thing about Gossip Girl that I personally liked. And in this one, he is a bookstore manager. And he, 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 I don't know how to describe him. He's a stalker, right? So there's that. And he's also sociopathic, but not completely sociopathic. He's sociopathic except for like one person who he is fully pathic but so pathic it goes back to sociopathic i think a lot of people might be able to find some relation between this show and dexter maybe even breaking bad in the way some of the tension works but this really follows a story of a very bad person who falls in love with this woman he meets at the bookstore her name is guinevere beck played by elizabeth lale and he becomes completely obsessed with her he like hacks her phone, he follows her, spies on her, and his mission is to not just date her, not just to get her to fall in love with him, but to like fix her life. And this show is a fantastic breakdown of the toxic nice guy. And we've seen a lot of stuff in the last couple of years that really break down toxic masculinity in similar ways. But this one goes way more for the sort of like the nice guy who comes off as very charming, who if he didn't do a lot of these obsessive, terrible things, she'd probably fall in love with him anyway. <laughs> but because he does all of these things, it sort of undermines this view, this modeling that he has of himself. And it's it's a great, uh, it's a great psychological guilty pleasure sort of show that also has really thrilling crime drama elements. It's very thrilling. It's 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 such a joy to watch and. I, I don't know how they're going to be able to do a second season because I think Caroline Kepnes, who did the first book, I think she only did one book. I may be wrong about that, but I, I absolutely, I absolutely think that this is one to check out. If you have any sort of guilty pleasure bone in your body, it's way more worth your time. For example, in something like I think the bachelor, which another kind of guilty pleasure thing that has, th this actually has something to say, but I, I do worry that some people might misconstrue it, and they already are, that like Penn Badgley's character is sympathetic when he is absolutely not. But the show, if you, if you follow it all the way through, you do get an understanding of what 
the implications of this type of person is and it, it's pretty wonderful but pretty wonderful to watch and john stamos shows up in this show i'll just give that away i won't say in what way or how but he he's in this and uh i think it's it's a joy that he said yes to this and i'm glad i'm glad he has a role oh i was gonna say i have to make a correction on your behalf so the series did premiere on lifetime on september 9th 2018 and then it was picked up by netflix who i guess is going to be releasing the show uh, for the rest of its uh, time, but they uh, categorize it as a Netflix original, so I can understand the confusion. Right, there is some confusion. I, see, I wasn't sure if they actually. Um, and and sorry, you know, Chemnitz did do another novel that actually came out last year, but uh, it. I don't know if it how closely it follows the show. Now I've said a lot. Will Ashen, Julia, are you interested? <laughs> have I have I made this one sound like it's worth checking out? The way that you described just the plot has boggled my mind. So I feel that I at least owe it to myself to kind of understand what this whole thing is. I mean, John Stamos pops up, sociopaths, crime. You said a mouthful there, John. That's a mouthful. I will say May Abdul-Baki is on my side. She and I have been tweeting about this show pretty incessantly. We're both fans, but we also recognize that it's one of those shows that I hope people recognize the true messages that are being shown here and that they don't have the sort of like Joker and Harley sort of thing. It was like, man, mm-hmm. that's a love story. No, it's not. That is not a love oh. story. <laughs> uh, other thing that I checked out that I'll only briefly talk about is technically the first 2019 film I saw this year was Escape Room, which we would have, it would have been a featured episode last week, but we had our top 10 of the year. And I just want to put it out there that I think Escape Room is pretty pretty decent. I, I actually had a good time seeing this one. It was directed by Adam Robitel, and I think that it's it's got a pretty good cast. Like Logan Miller is in this, Ariane Wool, Taylor Russell, Tyler Labine, Jay Ellis, Nick Dodani. So some of those people are from there's the Daredevil actress in this, there's the guy from Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Some some good actors and and I I think that this is a little bit better than I was expecting. It's from Sony and it's about a group of people who get trapped in an escape room. It's not the most original premise in the world, but the thing I liked about this was the set design, the production value and all that was really good. Like the actual escape rooms that they're trying to escape from that are trying to kill them are very creative and imaginative. And I, I, I had a good time and I, I kind of sat back and let this movie happen. And I think if it has a sequel, I'm in. I think I'm going to see it, but I, I don't think, have either of you been, had a chance to check this one out? I have uh, not. Yeah, I haven't seen it, no. Yeah, I, I'm not saying you should rush out to see it. it it's kind of a B minus for me, but it's kind of an enthusiastic B minus. Like, I, I think that it's its problems are mainly in moments that happen toward the end, which I, I, I think I'm not alone on that sort of takeaway that it sort of falls apart by the time you get to the very end. And there, there was a twist coming that I thought was worse than the twist I had in my head. So it, it's not the best movie in the world, but for a January sort of horror film, it's kind of... It's, I think it's going to be up a lot of people's alley. It's not gory. It's not too extreme. It's pretty accessible, but it also had me like I was pretty tense and there's a lot of good suspense going on here. And I think that this is a, it, it's a good film from a filmmaker who I've had issues with in the past. He he did paranormal, the ghost dimension, which I think is one of the few <laughs> F grades I've given. Uh, I think is absolutely terrible. And he's, he did insidious, the last key. He, he's just, the way that he's done existing franchises haven't been great. So I kind of like that he just did his own and it's pretty good. I hope the sequel is a step forward and 
maybe it's a little bit better. It, it kind of, I hope it rounds out the sort of rougher parts of this one, but you may want to check it out if you're interested. The trailer was pretty solid too. So that's kind of what gave me reason to go ahead and give it a chance. But okay, that's everything I've caught up on. We just have one review left for this episode. Will Ashen, you got a kind of a sneak peek into kind of a tumultuous show that has seen better days, but tell us about true detective season three. I, I want to know, you know, everything about it and, Oh, let's, let's play a clip from the trailer before you get started. Before you ever knew me, I wasn't scared much. I wasn't a fearful man. I'll be back before the sun goes down. You understand? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Those kids, my kids, my wife, my whole brain's a bunch of missing pieces. Mr. Hayes. Mr. Hayes. What? Have you sat back over the last two decades and thought about the sheer number of fatalities surrounding this case? What happened? All right, that's from True Detective, season three. Will, what do you think? Yeah, so like you said, I mean, this show has kind of uh, had a history in more ways than... Uh, yeah, it, it just it is a show that has had many ups and many downs. Um, I consider the first season, like many people, to be uh, one of the best seasons of television in quite a while. I think it's probably Matthew McConaughey's best performance. And I just think the way that it's made and executed and written and directed is so good that it makes sense that it changed how TV kind of became more cinematic, which is the main reason why I wanted to cover it on the show, because I think the first season no matter what happens after it is so good at what it did that it pretty much changed how peak TV came to be. So uh, with that season two, I, yeah, it, it's not good. Uh, I was rewatching clips from season two just to confirm that. Yeah, it's bad. Like it, it's just muddled. It's confused. I couldn't even finish a couple it. Good I, performances. What was it? I only watched like one episode. I, I couldn't get through it. Oh really? Yeah. Yeah. It only gets worse from episode one. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I applaud Vince Vaughn for trying, you know, more dramatic, serious role in it. And I think Colin Farrell is, is good as well as, uh, Rachel McAdams, but yeah, it just didn't work. And there's too much going on. It just felt ultimately very confused. It's fairly procedural process. Like it was a procedural type story that felt like it had more stuff thrown into it to make it seem more intriguing but it really wasn't it was just confused uh and i think that was just because they rushed it out like obviously with the first season the creator nick pizzolato was uh working on that for several years he laid it out pretty thoroughly so when it came to be it was really well executed and solid and i think the second season just was rushed mm -hmm. and uh kind of just thrown out there in a way that it wasn't ready or finished so uh he took his time with season three i, I think we all knew it was going to come eventually but it he took a couple years. He really wanted to, uh, you know, let the the uh, stink of the second season kind of fade away. And now he has season three, which is definitely trying to harken back to season one. It's uh, it's in the Midwest again. I think it's in Arkansas, and it's uh, centered around Marshall Lee's character, whose name is Wayne Hayes, and uh, his partner Stephen Dorse, uh, Roland West, and they have uh, this case where it's. Two kids decide to play in like the middle of the day, one seemingly innocent day, and then they go missing, and uh, no one really knows what happens. 
And as we're starting to see the story, because it, it's about three different timelines that are shown, uh, all from Marcello's time or point of view, uh, you, you turn to realize that there's kind of more going on, that it really kind of broke the town ultimately, and how uh, the small town perceived like, what was going on or how things happened. Uh, especially because there are a lot of loose ends that ultimately uh, leave uh, Wayne Hayes kind of uh, troubled by this case. Um, but it's it's solid. It, I think overall it's pretty good. But I would say, on the whole, it, it doesn't quite reach the same heights as season one, which is fine. I just want it to be pretty good, uh, ultimately. I think that's where it resides. Like It, it, it kind of feels like it's retreading similar ground. It definitely isn't original. It, it definitely is kind of doing the supernatural thing again, which feels a little more forced mm. than uh, it was in the first season. But... I think the performances are really solid. I definitely think Marshall Lee is good in here. Um, Stephen Dorff is solid. Uh, Scoot McNeary is in it, and he's fantastic. <laughs> uh, as is, um, oh, what's her name? I'm trying to remember. Uh, I'll pull it up just real quick. Uh, da, 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 da. Carmen Gijo. Is that how you pronounce her name? Um, do you know how you pronounce her name, John? How, what was the last thing? A Gijo? Uh, it's Carmen like e- Joko. Oh, Joko. Sorry. It's my bad. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, I forget where she's from. I definitely recognize her from something. She yeah, was she was in a, It Comes at Night. Uh, oh, yeah. In, yeah, okay, yeah. She, okay. I, think, I think the last thing she was in was probably Alien Covenant, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. But she's very good. She's, oh, um, no, she's, she's in Crimes of Grindelwald, isn't she? Isn't she the, uh, the Ministeress of Magic or something? Serafina Picari? Is that her name? The character's name? Serafina something? Yeah, yeah Serafina. Serious. Mm-hmm. I remember more about that movie than I thought, but anyway. But anyway, yeah, she she writes. Um, she she gets kind of interconnected with us as well. Not only because through this case she forms a relationship with uh, Marshall Lee's character, but she also writes this kind of in cold blood esque book about it that becomes kind of this classic about the uh, non fiction crime genre, which mm-hmm. uh, the film or sorry the the show is kind of commenting on that as well about like how true crime at least as far as how it's perceived in the show is kind of uh, kind of a weird trend that kind of perceives and is kind of a darkly fascinating thing for people. But overall, I think it's solid. It, I, I'm definitely interested to check out the other episodes, especially because um, they also play with the idea that Marshall Lee might not be of sound mind, that he might have uh, some kind of mental disorder, which uh, considering that the show is from his perspective means that, Maybe we're not getting all the right details, and maybe we're getting some wrong things. So overall, I mean, it's solid. On, I think. Hold on, Relation. Are you trying to tell me that a true crime might have an unreliable narrator? Tell me more yeah. about this original groundbreaking yeah, idea. Yeah, I guess ultimately, yeah, I guess like especially watching the last season of True Detective or um, uh, BoJack Horseman, where they're kind of like really poking at True Detective's ribs. Yeah, it's like um, doing a western yeah. after Blazing Saddles, right? Like, <laughs> what's left? Right, and that's the thing is that like I think I, I that's why I never really expected the season to be great because I think everything it's done has already been kind of like copied and uh, even maybe in some cases done just as well. Um, I haven't seen like Mine Hunter, for instance, but um, I heard that's really good. You literally in work. that show, Will? <laughs> How have you What's still it? not yeah. seen Mine Hunter? Uh, yeah, yeah, I am in the show. Yes. Um, <laughs> for those of you who don't know, Will is an extra in Mindhunter, we, we had a whole episode on cinema holics where we found him and like found his like silhouette. It was pretty fun. Yeah. I'm in the show. <laughs> yes. Uh, 
And I can say that I've worked with David Fincher, if very indirectly. So <laughs> and uh, Linklater. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, but that's a different thing. But yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, Jeremy Salander is the guy who directed the first two episodes, which is why I watched. I don't know if I ever said that, but yeah, I watched the first two episodes. Um, he does a pretty good job. I just don't know if he can really have as good a direction as Carrie Fukunaka. Like even his miniseries uh, that we covered, uh, Maniac was good but it wasn't like true detective season one good and i don't know if they're ever really gonna have that same height i'm really i though i think with carrie fukunaka he might be able to make something that is as good as true detective season one as for Nick it's a lot are you talking what? about jeremy sunier is that how you pronounce his name i think green room? so yeah green room blue ruin yeah yeah, yeah. i thought you said we jeremy salinger ready, I- pronouncing last names so. <laughs> i just want to make sure because because i know i know a lot of people will, will recognize his work but yeah i, I thought for a right. second you said jeremy salinger sorry but... <laughs> no i probably yeah i was thinking i'm probably mispronouncing thing. it honestly so i don't want to uh, but i apologize to the man he he does good work and he he does oh, a yeah. pretty good job um yeah he also did hold the dark last year which i enjoyed uh so yeah i'm gonna stick with it i think it's pretty good i think it's a solid start um, the first two episodes I saw will premiere tonight on HBO and um, I'm intrigued to see what people think. But as for Nick Pizzolato, I feel like, I don't know, it, like there's definitely good stuff in here, but at the same time, it does kind of feel like self parody at times, not as much as season two, but it does kind of feel like he's trying to imitate himself in some ways. And I'm worried that the conclusion isn't going to be quite worth it, which is mm-hmm. the main thing that's keeping me so far as the intrigue of the show. So, for now, I think it's solid. I'll probably give it a B, but um, we'll see what happens. Yeah, I, I don't have any interest. I just, I'm so sick of this genre, if I haven't made that clear. Like, I'm just not interested in serial, making a murderer, crime shows in general. I just, I'm kind of done at the moment. And I like what Mindhunter was doing because it was a little bit more, it was just a different format about these topics because it's not the idea of crime that I think is, you know, boring me. I just think... Everything about like all of these tropey detective stories, just they need a little bit of juice or something. And it doesn't yeah. sound like this has that. So I'm kind of thinking I might well, not yeah, check it out immediately. It's definitely tropey as far as what I've seen so far. I think it's just the execution is good enough that you kind of just go with it. But like I said, I mean, if season one is like must see TV, this is just, I think, if you were burnt by season two and you just want to see a good season of true detective after the first one i think i'd recommend this third season but i wouldn't say it's musty tv like season one by any means julia were you into the for the first season of true detective is this on your radar at all um it's been on my radar for a while i've been meaning to revisit the first season i checked out for the second season but i mean my interest is there for season three um yeah i'd be willing to give the first two episodes uh shot for sure but yeah i've i've been kind of in that place and like you were saying uh actually john uh i'm a i'm a very big fan of the mind hunter series and i think that why that series works for me is because it's not so much about the crime so much as it is the psychology behind it and working within the minds of these criminals and the justification for what they do um yeah, I think that that kind of the well, it's called Mind Hunter. So right, kind that's of the what mind I'm sorry. Game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and also like behind that. Yeah. Right, right. The mystery isn't the same mystery it always is. Like, who did it? In that show, the mystery is why right. do they do it? And that to me is more interesting. Yeah. And uh, mm-hmm. all of these like 
all right, we have to figure out who did it. And maybe along the way, we'll learn that something about ourselves. And it's like, all right, sure. But anyway, that's True Detective season three. Sounds like it's it's worth checking out if you're a fan of the True Detective season one. And like yeah. you said, Will, it, it might be up a lot of people listening. It might be up your alley. So. I was going to say also, if you're a big fan of Marshall Lee, he's doing some really good work here. So I would check yeah. it out for him as well. All right, that'll do it for all the reviews we have this week. Next week, we're going to be talking about Glass. And again, it's going to be our 100th episode, so please write in all of your suggestions, whatever you want us to do, within reason, I guess. I mean, it's not just going to become a totally different podcast for one episode, I guess, depending on what you ask. But we'll see what happens. Will, I have a feeling people are going to ask us to drink or something and have like a drunk episode. (laughs) We, we've we've at, we've oh, been boy, asked no, to right. do that before, and really? okay, yeah, drunk we have. History, but drunk, drunk history, yeah. but drunk movie plots. Right, not yeah. original. I know I mean, some other podcasts do that, and we have drunk well, yeah, on the I mean, show before. We did like a parody of that on it, Ogre Toast Ogre, but yeah. um, <laughs> uh, I don't know if we'll do it here or not. We'll see. I guess we'll leave that invitation open. I mean, the movie's called Glass, so. I guess we could get away with it, have a glass of something while we, I don't know. We'll, we'll talk about it. If you have any interest in something like that or anything else, let us know. But otherwise, don't forget to leave us a review for the show if you want to support us on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Ditcher. You can email us, cinemahogspodcast.gmail.com, our Facebook, our Twitter. It's all in the show notes. Go to the show notes to find everything from ways to support this podcast and to ways to just find other platforms that we're on if you want to do that sort of thing. Julia, thank you again for coming on Cinemaholics. We had a blast talking about most of these movies with you, um, especially the really good ones. Oh, thank you guys so much. Thank you guys so much for having me. This was awesome. Thank you. All right. Well, from the Internet California, I am John Negroni. From the Internet Pennsylvania, I'm Lush. From the Internet Pennsylvania as well, I'm yeah. Julia Tatey. We'll yeah. see you next time. <laughs>